Welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. I talk with a very special guest, my cousin, Jim McLeod. Jim has a fascinating and very successful career in the mortgage and banking industry. Now he serves on several boards and is affiliated with the University of Tampa and the University of South Carolina Medical College. I could talk with Jim for hours. He's a great storyteller and has wisdom to share that is practical, thought-provoking, and motivating. What motivates him? What are the key principles he lives by? What are his favorite soft skills and special advice for young Jim? Listen in to find out and enjoy this episode. So this is exciting. I, you're my, this is, I get a little confused about our actual connection. I know we're cousins, but are you my second cousin? I'm either your second cousin or your first cousin once removed. And I've never been able to figure yeah. that out. We, we need my dad. If my dad was here, he was very good at lineage and being able to describe the once removed, twice removed. <laughs> I was, I'm with you. We, we, we share great grandparents. Yes, we do. Yes, we, we do. do. <laughs> yes, we do. And you're somebody that uh, other family members have said, you got to have Jim on the, on the program. And... I, you know, we just visited recently and I felt like uh, what a great opportunity to reach out and ask for this favor <laughs> after we spent some time together. And so I, I appreciate you doing this. I know you have a lot going on. You're a busy man. So I just appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and maybe get to know you in a little bit of a different way. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe I'll know you in a different yeah, way. Yeah, I know. So you know, I remember you as a little girl, the 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 baby sister. And actually, I think what are you, a year or two? We figured this out before a year or two older than Kimberly. Yes, just yeah, with I think maybe within three years for sure. So it's good. It's great. And and you know, if if you look around in this room and you've been in this room, yeah. this was Whelan's desk right behind me. Yeah. These are all my grandfather's antique hunt prints and uh and actually i could pull out pictures of our mutual great-grandparents but I, I won't do that <laughs> yes well and one of the things that i appreciated we were just talking about is that when we visited you you were able to tell some stories that i think one it was just captivating and and interesting because we don't know them and two this connection to the past and connection to to my grandmother who you know you were very close to and who was a wonderful woman and my mother's mother obviously and she was regal and graceful and and had a very interesting life of her own so just for you to be able to tell some of those stories and some of the the history there was really nice it was great so let's talk a little bit about i mean you are in an interesting phase of your career with respect to where you are in your life. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing. Now, I, I frame it as like a typical day, but you know, you might you might just frame it more as like, what are the things that you're involved in now? Because you're still a very busy yeah, man. I totally flunked retirement. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was fortunate enough to leave my corporate job when I was 56 years old. Uh, and in two weeks, I'll be 76. So I've spent the last 20 years uh, not doing what I had to do. I'm doing what I want to do. And that's really cool. When I wake up in the morning, I, I think about the stuff that I have to do. And what's really neat about it, Teresa, is the stuff that I want to do or have to do is the same. Wow. But what do I mean by that? Yeah. I mean that when I wake up in the morning, I can dive into what I've got going on, or I can say, hey, you know what? I'm gonna go play golf. And that's really important. And that's, the, that's my retirement. 
Uh, my jobs today, I, I actually still have one paying job. I am the chairman of, of Coastal South Bank Shares and Coastal States Bank. Um, we're a great little community bank uh, headquartered here in Hilton Head, South Carolina, but also uh, having branches in Savannah, Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, and, and actually all the way up into Northern Georgia. And we can talk about that later, but, yeah. but that's the paying job. The jobs that I really love are my non-paying jobs, which are, you know, centered around the things that are important to Liz and I, and that is education. I'm the immediate past chair of the University of Tampa, uh, down in Tampa, Florida. I, I also, we're going through a presidential trans, uh, transformation on the search committee looking for a new president for that university and a heck of a, a burden in, in the fact that you got to pick the right person yeah and and in addition to that um i am chair of the university of south carolina foundation uh, which is a billion dollar foundation that is established to support the medical university of south carolina and the MUSC Health System, which is a statewide uh, nonprofit uh, public hospital system. And it's the only one of its kind in the state of South Carolina. And we can we'll talk about that, that more later too. And then and locally in Hilton Head, my, my passion around some of the things we talked about when we were last together, and that's heritage, you know, where do we all come from and how are we paying reasonable respect to the people that got us here? And I'm on the board of the Heritage Library, which does uh, ancestral um, research here in, in uh, South Carolina, as well as I'm very involved in the Mitchellville Preservation Freedom Park. Uh, which I think we talked about when we were together. Yep. Mitchellville is is the first uh, self governed community of formerly enslaved people that came to Hilton Head. It was a Union fortress to be protected uh, during the period of emancipation, and and it's really cool. And I hope maybe some of your your podcast listeners and watchers will someday come here and look at it because. It's like a place that formerly enslaved people built their lives and many, many of their ancestors still live here on the island, which is cool. Anyway, that that's kind of what I do for uh, a living. That's um, all? Yeah. <laughs> Let me, you mentioned, I didn't hear, I think it glitched a little bit, the role with um, Tampa. It, it, say that where it get it, you're, you're affiliated with, how are you affiliated with Tampa? I'm, I'm the um, immediate past chair of the Board of Trustees of the University of Tampa, which is a private university located in Tampa, Florida. It is um, my alma mater. It's where I got my undergraduate degree. Uh, and it's where I was, my wife, uh, uh, 56, 56 years ago. Congratulations on that. That's no small feat yeah. either. Yeah. So, um, and, and we've become very involved uh, over the years and really dedicated ourselves to uh, creating endowed scholarships down there and supporting particularly uh, programs around the arts. Yes, yes. I know you have a love for the arts and the art in your home is, is, is just lovely and beautiful and you have such a great eye. <laughs> Uh, so tell me a little bit about your career and we can start wherever you'd like. I, you're, you know, you're someone that has had a lot of success. And so, you know, the easy question up front would just be, what are some of those ingredients to success? What are the things that have proven over time that work? I think that that's maybe we can start there. And then, you know, just would love to hear too about how you've navigated and what were some of the you know key milestones for you along the way so i know that's two questions but maybe we'll start with the first one maybe those success factors and then through that we might hear a little bit about the journey i guess i guess the place to start is that um when i 
was in college. I, I started out as a marine biology major at the University of Tampa, which uh, I quickly recognized I wasn't smart enough to be a marine biologist. And I took a economics course, Economics 101. Uh, Paul Samuelson was the was the author, and my professor was Dr. Davis. And I realized that the study of the economy was just incredibly fascinating because it's one of the only degrees that you can get that you either get a BAA or a BS in economics because it's um, it can be very quantitative based, right. but it can also it is essentially the study of the behavior of human beings and how they react to the things that are going on in the economy. Right. So it's really, really cool. And, you know, it's known as the dismal science. And um, so anyway, I went through school, really fell in love with the study of economics and um, took a job as a financial analyst. And I, I was immediately put into a position where I met with bankers because I was doing due diligence and financial analysis on banks in association with directors and officers liability insurance. And here I am, you know, 22 years old, thinking that I can tell these bankers what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. And that worked really well and, and for about three years. And I, I learned so much about human interaction, the interaction between me as a person looking for uh, how people are doing business in the banking environment and how to best get that information out. Bankers don't talk a lot. Mm-hmm. They, you know, their stock and trade is not being able to, not talking about their customers. Mm-hmm. They talk with their customers. You never talk about your customers. And it's very interesting from that standpoint. That got a little boring. My dad called me and he asked me to come back to New Jersey to work with him. And, and I stayed associated with the banking business because I got into the real estate appraisal, mortgage appraising work, as well as consulting on real property valuations um, hmm. around a lot of the things that were going on in the business back then, real estate limited partnerships and things of that nature. Really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed working with my dad. It was a real gift. I started to do a lot of uh, expert testimony. And one day a judge came up to me after I gave my testimony and put his arm on my on my shoulder. And he said, son, uh, you're really pretty good at this. But if you're going to take it to the next level, you need to get some additional credentials. Now, I have, been, I have been designated, I had a real estate appraisal designation from American, American Institute of Real Estate Appraisers, but no advanced degrees. I went home that night and looked at Liz, my wife, my two daughters, who were then, I think, in um, kindergarten and second grade, and said, I think I'm going back to get my graduate degrees because this judge thinks I ought to. So Liz said to me, well, where are you going to go at night? And I said, no, we're going to go during the day. And I said, we're going to move away and I'm going to leave my job, my company that I started and get a degree. So off I went to Georgia Tech to get a degree in urban planning. Was very, very fortunate at Georgia Tech to be named a presidential scholar allowed me to go also get a degree in real estate finance from Georgia State University. And uh, we were off to Georgia. And two years later, I was looking for a job, decided not to go back to do what I had been doing before. Mm-hmm. I, there were so many things going on in the world of real estate finance uh, and um, land use back in, in those days. I was going to get a job in the Southeast and we were going to live there for the rest of our lives. Well, I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal. There's an ad for a job in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I'm reading this ad saying, this is the perfect job. 
but I'll never get it. So I said to Liz, I'm going to apply for this and see what happens. A month later, we were moving to Milwaukee. And, and I think back on this, I go, wow. Uh, at 32 years old, I was the director of commercial products underwriting uh, for Mortgage Guarantee Insurance Corporation. And I was the oldest guy in the hmm. in the group. Wow. I had to figure out. This was kind of a new company. We were doing crazy things. Um, we did things all the way from uh, develop office buildings to uh, residential high-end construction. We owned a residential building company in Florida. We owned a uh, condo conversion company because all of the savings and loans back in those days were foreclosing on apartment buildings because of high interest rates, by the way, and um, converting them into condominium. We had a company that outsourced um, condo conversions, and we were working on financial guarantees for creative uh, real estate finance opportunities on Wall Street. I worked for a guy who was a graduate of the Air Force Academy. He was a an incredibly bright banker, um, great mentor who liked the fact that I had gone to a military school. And for some reason, he took me under his wing and, um, and taught me some of the soft skills and, and taught me about more about being a leader mm-hmm. and, and being a servant leader as opposed to mm-hmm. an autocratic leader. And mm-hmm. back in those days, there was a lot of autocratic leadership right. going on. It was, you do it my way or you don't do it. Well, servant leaders kind of do things a little bit differently. And this guy's name was Glenn Hurlmeyer, German heritage graduate of the Air Force Academy. And the guy was a servant leader. He knew can I ask one question about the degrees? So you you mentioned two degrees that you went back to school. Did you get them at the same time? Or did yeah, you? Yeah, I did. I went to Georgia Tech during the day and I went to Georgia State Robinson School of Business at night and did both of the degrees oh. at the same time. And then during that time, did you have income? Because you were going to school during the day and night. So how did you live? Like, and you'd moved to Georgia with the kids, right. I'm guessing. How did that work? I actually sold my uh, college ring. <laughs> actually, uh, we, we sold a lot of stuff and um, we made it for two years. Wow. Um, luckily, luckily, um, we had put some money away. Yeah, you'd yeah. That's Liz, amazing. And then are you someone that was that was maybe a you know a second run at, at education after you had already been through your undergraduate. Are you a and you said you had found economics and a love for that. So for you and, and you now you you know you're affiliated with a lot of universities at this point. So for you, did did education and school come very easy to you in sort of the academic world? Is that something that we are smiling? So I'm interested in your response to this. Like, is it something I think there's a lot of people that assume people are either great at school or they aren't right. And there's only certain types that kind of thrive in that environment. So I'm curious for you. Here you are someone now a double degree degree. So tell me a little bit about. Yeah. Does, is that something that came easy for you? Do you have to work at it? Teresa's new book, Soft Skills I Learned the Hard Way, is out and available on Amazon. She writes about many epic fails throughout her career and how she learned from them so you don't have to. This book is full of cheat codes for how you can differentiate yourself when it matters, like in interviews, trying to get a promotion, or being a first-time leader. As always, thank you, Relatable Community. We are so grateful for your support and continued listenership. As of today... We are 8,000 listeners and 15 countries strong. Now back to the show. I was never a great student until I got to grad school. Okay. I wasn't curious. I I kind of thought that it was a 
you know, a box you needed to check. You got to get out of high school and then yeah. you better go to college and you check that. And I'll never forget the first week of orientation at the University of Tampa. The students got up and told the incoming freshman class, oh, this is a four-year journey and you need a C average to get out and graduate. And I looked at the guy next to me and said, I can do C's. And I graduated from the University of Tampa with a C average. Actually did fairly well in my economics courses, but the rest of the stuff didn't interest me that much. Yeah. As I got a little bit older, I got a little bit more serious mm-hmm. about studying and the value of education. Uh, when I went back to grad school, uh, I was fortunate enough, as I said, to become a presidential scholar yeah. at Georgia Tech. And uh, it was because I got a bunch of A's because it was stuff I really was mm-hmm. interested in. And I kind of did the same thing at, at Georgia State. I tried to be a, a lifetime learner. I, I actually began the PhD program at Georgia State and my chairman of my department wanted me to stay on and finish it. And um, I thought it was a great idea. I brought Liz in to meet with them and have her explain why, or have him explain why I should do this. And we walked out of that meeting and just looked me straight in the eye and said, Jim, it's time to get a real job. <laughs> Let me ask you this too, as we, before I kind of go to the next phase, for you at that time that you were in Milwaukee, no, you had gone to school before Milwaukee, correct? What was your, and maybe this is something that, maybe this has changed for you over time or it's the same thing. I am curious, what for you would you say is behind your drive and your motivation to succeed? I have a little thing on my desk that was given to me by, it could have been your grandmother. And it said, if you're not the lead, dog, the scenery never changes. Hmm. Really, it was, it was a great motivator for me. I, I love I love to be out in front. Interesting. Um, I, I try to be humble as a, a leader, but I, I think it's really, I have a drive that I want to be the lead dog. And is, are you competitive? Uh, yeah, it was, I yep. would say most people would say that I'm competitive. <laughs> Uh, but I, I, I try to do it in a, a uh, way that um, exhibits humility, right. exhibits curiosity, and exhibits empathy. And I think, you know, our company in Milwaukee was a great example. Uh, MGIC was the largest mortgage insurance company in the, in the country. Mm. I ran, as I came up through the company, I ran the division of the company that had the highest market share, uh, not only in, in the in the country, but for the company. We sold a lot of mortgage insurance. We, we tried to excel yep. in the way we interacted with our customers. And that was a lot of fun for me. How long um, were you there in Milwaukee? 22 years. Oh, okay. 22 years. And um, when we moved to South Carolina, I said, I will never complain about hot weather. Um, and, you know, I came up through that company. I was really fortunate. I had, I had great mentors. I mentioned Glenn Hurlmeyer. Bill Lacey was the CEO of the company. He was a great mentor for me. And, and one of the questions you asked is, what are your secrets mm-hmm. to um, how you got ahead in this job. Yes. Well, I went to work doing things that I thought were number one, very interesting. And number two, it wasn't what you were doing. It was why you were doing it. All right. And believe it or not, in the financial world, it's a lot of what instead of why. But but I've always tried to approach it in a way that why was I in the mortgage insurance business? Well, I believed that home ownership is one of the cornerstones of the American dream. And what we did in the 
in, at Mortgage Guarantee Insurance Corporation was to help people buy homes earlier in their life. And, and by buying homes earlier in their life, getting that financial foundation that would allow them to go off and do, do great things. Mm -hmm. So when I got up and talked to our, our people, we talk about the why. You know, we're not here to sell mortgage insurance. We're here to sell home ownership. And it worked. And it's, it's the same thing that goes on today. Yeah. Why am I involved at MUSC and the University of Tampa? Well, the why is that we're preparing young people to go out into the world and be successful. Yeah. Whether it's at the University of Tampa to go on into a graduate program or to go into marketing or art or dance or at the Medical University of South Carolina to become doctors, nurses, dentists, yeah, psychiatrists, you know, psychologists. It's it's amazing, <laughs> and it's the why you do these things, not what you do. You had mentioned. I just want to go look back for a minute because you had mentioned earlier that you think one of the reasons the gentleman in Milwaukee that kind of put his arm around you was because of your military background. And so I wanted to touch on that for a minute. I, I have that you attended Valley Forge Military Academy. Tell me how that came to be and what prompted that choice. Growing up, and I think you know this, um, I came from a little bit of a dysfunctional family. Um, <laughs> particularly, my parents um, began to get divorced when I was probably 12 years old mm. and uh, finally got divorced when I was 30 years old. Oh, wow. Um, so it was a long journey. And um, I had always wanted structure. I had created structure because of that. Mm -hmm dysfunctionality, if you will. I my parents, but they were just, you know. Everybody has, yeah. But I always wanted structure, and I always thought that I would become a career army officer. And the best way to do that, obviously, is to go to West Point. Well, to go to West Point, you needed good grades, you needed experience and structure, and, um, and through the support of my grandparents, I was able to go to Valley Forge and see how that whole thing might work out. And I loved it. It was it was exactly what I needed. I I went into an environment that they, they taught you duty honor country, but they also taught you how to deal with instruction. You know, you're mm -hmm. up at the same time every morning. You're in class at the same time every day. You're raising the flight over the parade grounds at the same time. You're doing all these things, and you're you're learning about discipline. And it was it was a great experience. I I went there my first year as a plebe. I um, I was awarded the silver sword award, which was for the best plebe. I became a the second. I became a cadet master sergeant. I was on regimental staff, gave me great experience in leadership at 17 years old. And then um, I blew out my knee playing soccer, and that was the end of my West Point ambition. And, my, and I figured if I wasn't going to West Point, I wasn't going. And I ended up at the University of Tampa instead. <laughs> oh, wow. How long were you at the academy? Just two years. It was wonderful. I've been on the board of the Alumni Association in the past. And did you serve after that in any capacity in the military? No. No. So no, technically, um, I, I was drafted and rejected because of my need back in back oh. in the sixties. If you if you had an ACL injury in the sixties, they were not easily repaired. Right. Right. Wow. Interesting. And so that- and By the way, Grace, as you probably know, my grandson is currently in the United States. Yes. History, so. Yes, I love that. I love that. So um, we talked a little bit about it, but I think you, you are gonna mention, which I think would be really helpful to hear. You said there are certain principles 
that you structure your day or that that you live by. And I think it would be really helpful. One of the things that I don't know that I preempted this with you, but you mentioned it, so I feel like we can go here, is that I do feel like there are certain rituals that people have or habits of, of successful folks that each person has their own way of trying to to structure their day in a, in a way that best serves them. So tell me about your principles and how they've worked for you. Give us your yeah. secret. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think everyone's secrets are, are a little bit different. Yeah. But, um, there are, in, to, to my way of thinking, and I've already mentioned this, but I'll get a little bit deeper mm-hmm. into it. The three values that really drive me and have driven me, I think, my entire life, which I think were shared by my grandfather, Spencer Maven, your great uncle, were humility, curiosity, and empathy. Humility. I, I always, I, I try to approach everything I do with a proper amount of humility and humbleness. There is always somebody out there who you can learn something from. There is always someone out there that's smarter than you are. There is always someone out there that's a better athlete. I, I learned that playing soccer. I learned it playing hockey. I learned it by playing tennis. Golf. I was I was decent at all three, but there was always somebody better. Humility, particularly in business, is a core value that, if handled properly, will allow you to rise up and attract people to be around you number one humility curiosity like you i'm curious about people i'm curious about what comes next yeah i i tried to count one day the number of individual jobs i've had i've only had four employers in my entire career but I think I've had somewhere in excess of 25 jobs. Yeah. And they, it was a little different. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a, probably, if I go back to high school, more than 25 jobs. I, I was a dishwasher. I, I worked in an ice cream store scooping. And, um, and I always tried to be the best dishwasher, the best ice cream scooper. But I was never afraid to take that next step, even though I wasn't an expert at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Example, real quick, is that at one point, my boss in, in Milwaukee called me and said, we're going to shut down this part of the company that you're involved in, and you can go be a resident, the, the division underwriting manager for uh, the company in a different part, in, in Atlanta. And I said, I don't know anything about residential underwriting. And he said, not a problem. You'll figure it out. And I really, I became the director of underwriting for the entire country at one point. Curiosity, what's the next thing is really important. And the one, the third value is, as I said, empathy. How do you, if you are going to be humble, if you are going to be curious you also need to be empathetic you need to find a way to understand why a different point of view might be the right one right and if you put yourself into the position of that under other person and try to understand where they've come from and understand why they may about things differently than you do you become a better person it's really hard actually it's the thing i work on every day hopefully i've demonstrated i have a bit of humility i am a curious person but i really need to work on this empathy thing and every day i wake up and i go all right can i be better i want to and i've got i got friends that help me with yeah I want to ask you a question that I've had a lot of conversations with, and I'll phrase this with with mostly women, and I think it's because obviously I'm a woman, and the and I'm a woman that is 
has had a career in human resources, which is predominantly women. So when I think about the fellow executives that I know and, and the circles that I run in with respect to the, the work that I do, there's a that's mostly my community. And one of the conversations that I have a lot and there are women that do this very well, so I don't want to stereotype this as a male-female thing, but I'm curious because of those three things you just mentioned, with respect to those three things, you know, humility, curiosity, and empathy, that line between driving high performance and having high expectations of people and objectively driving forward when you have to and and you're trying to succeed and you're and and so the way i think i would ask this question is i feel like there are certain people that i've observed they're very good at managing up at the expense of the people that report to them they're very successful and then i've seen people that are and i would actually characterize myself in this way where i think i struggled because my team came before everything else and i think that actually became a problem for me in my own career trajectory because there wasn't enough balance. So this idea of, I don't know quite how to frame this question, you're nodding, so I think you get where I'm going, which is this balance, I think, between the two, between being, driving high performance, having high expectations, you know, moving things forward, being a sympathetic, you said empathetic, you know, and, and a leader that has humility and curiosity and I'm curious how you've done this dance or how do you you know how how do you cultivate all the things and feel good about it yeah um, well that, that's really a great question it's hard um, and it it truly is all about communication skills mm. and understanding not just to communicate but when to communicate and what circumstances to communicate. I mean, I, I believe in my heart of hearts that I am a servant leader. It's all about the team you create and you you bring together people who are, are in fact different with a common goal. You know, and you, you gotta be really smart about articulating the goals and articulating the rules around how you're going to achieve those goals. Mm. All right? I mean, Interesting. business ethics are really important. As a matter of fact, one of the things I'm working on right now is trying to, I, I want to write a paper on the ethics of entrepreneurship, ah. which is really a complex subject. Yeah. Because entrepreneurship is the art of destructing being destructive of current things, ways of doing things, right? So what are the ethics of entrepreneurship in these days of AI and social media? I think this becomes really important, but you gotta, you gotta set the goal. You gotta set the rule on how you're going to achieve those goals. Then you have to be a good, good communicator. You know, you talk about managing up. The way I developed my relationship with my boss, Bill Lacey, uh, was early in my career and, and relationship with him. Um, we were in a meeting and he was going around the room asking folks uh, what we needed to do to achieve a certain goal. Mm-hmm. And I gave him an answer, which was kind of a textbook answer. And then as we were walking out, of the room, I pulled him aside and I said, Bill, you know, what we really knew, need to do to achieve these new goals that you're laying out is, have you stopped sending mixed messages? And this is the CEO of the company and I'm a vice president. And I, I said to him, you're sending mixed messages. The organization is confused. You gotta stop doing that. Bill has since passed away. I actually was with his son about three weeks ago and Tom, who is now a very successful financial executive, looked at me and he said, you know, Jim, we're family. He said, you're my dad 
considered you to be as much a part of the family as anyone else. And he said, because you were honest with him, mm. but you did the right way. You know, you would never want to embarrass managing up. You don't want to suck up to that, those individuals and have other people see that. But you'd also be honest with them and respect the fact that they, uh, they got somewhere and they did it by doing things right. And you have to respect that. So I don't know if that makes any oh, sense. Oh my gosh, it's so great. I mean, yes, it makes a lot of sense. And while the judgment, you know, when we talk about this world of AI and we talk about how things have moved and accelerated so much with our technology, my opinion is that human judgment and the idea of, you know, for me, it's the soft skill space, but the judgment of how to interpret something, how to communicate it, how to advise, how the timing of that and how it can be career limiting if you do it in a way that's not thought through and intentional or to your point, what you had that conversation with him and that potentially changed your career trajectory because you did it in a way that was respectful, but you also were disruptor, right? Like that, that idea of you're putting something on the line, you don't know how it's going to go. You're calling someone out that could or could not be open to that opportunity. I mean, at least he was open to hearing you. You could have had a different reaction. So you are risking, risk it for the biscuit. <laughs> Uh, right. But then to your point, you what I think you've said a couple of times, which I like, it's like you're not afraid to move forward. You're not afraid to kind of push that thing that where your discomfort, you know, where there's someone you know, you're uncomfortable and you're like, but I you, I need this to move forward. And then the piece around your goals and objectives and that being very clear. I think you cannot understate that I do a lot of consulting and what I do now, and I see a lot of different CEOs operate differently. And this idea of clarity and in all things mm -hmm. that permeates through the whole company. So yeah, I mean, it, it, what we're doing today at our bank, and I work very closely with our CEO, I'm the chairman, he's the CEO, he runs, he runs the place, he's the guy that's I hold responsible to make sure we get to the end game. But he and I work together so closely and every presentation we do at the bank, whether it's to customers, whether it's to shareholders, whether it's to regulators, these two pages of the presentation are, number one, what are our core values? Mm. And number two, what are our long-term objectives? or goals and it's the same thing same two pieces of paper now they get reviewed on a regular basis to make sure they're current mm -hmm. but every presentation we do no matter what, what stakeholder we're talking to understands these are core values and these are long-term goals and objectives I love and it. then we move into what we're going to talk about mm -hmm. and you can't say it enough hmm. because people are always wondering when are they going to change? What what's different? And people struggle with with change, hmm. but if you can bring them along and get them to really buy into it, understand that a core value is that we are ethical. A core value is that we serve our customers, we serve our co-workers, we serve our shareholders, and it's a, it's a triangle. Mm -hmm. But in the middle, it's the customer, you got to take care of the customer. And once they get it, and they understand, and, and not just you saying it, doing it. Yeah. It's really cool. It works. Yeah. People, people can rally around it. Think, those are things people feel good about. What is the best, um, and I'm sorry, I'm hitting you with some things that I didn't I didn't prep you for, but you're you're actually generating some some things for me. What is the best piece of constructive feedback you were ever given? When you think about the feedback you gave that leader that day, when you said, "Hey, the mixed messaging is not helpful," 
what is the best, whether it was someone that reported to you or someone that was a leader to you? What, you know, I'm sure there's probably more than just one, but is there something that sticks out that for you has made the biggest difference? Check out our TFA Soft Skills YouTube channel for video interview highlights. Please subscribe and leave comments. We are sharing new video content regularly. Take a few minutes to check us out. TFA Soft Skills on YouTube. Yeah, I, I think honest feedback is always some hardest stuff to provide, yeah. but also some of the most valuable stuff to provide. You know, I, again, Bill Lacey um, taught me that you don't have to be sick to get better. You don't have to be what? You don't have to be sick to get better. Oh, what is that? You can be well and still get better, right? Oh. Honest feedback, honest feedback of, hey, help me understand why you did it this, that way because maybe if you try something else, it might work more effectively. And, and engage people to self-discover, but honest feedback. You know, so often people, <clears throat> particularly nowadays, back in the old days, you could smack somebody upside the head and say, you know, we're going to do it this way. Right. You know, today, you can't do that anymore. Right. You got to reel them in. And I have found that if you provide <clears throat> as honest feedback on the negative side as you do on the positive side, no one's surprised. Right. They know what they're doing wrong. Yep. They know exactly what they're doing wrong. You just got to say, call it to their attention and say, maybe a little different behavior might. And I, I love that question. It, it's been asked of me and, and I ask it of others, which is, tell me how you got here. Like, tell me what was your thought process to get to this point. And then how could we do it different? If it's something that maybe didn't go well, how, how would we do it differently next time? And I think that open-ended, it's you're not attacking, but it, and it's really, I really want to know. <laughs> because if I don't know how you got there and I jump to conclusions, then I really can't serve you as a mentor and we can't figure it out. Right. So I, feel, yeah. I mean, Teresa, think of yourself. Where have you learned your, your most important lessons? From what you did right or what you did yes, wrong? Yes, I know for sure. Yes, <laughs> yes, for what? Yeah, for sure. Let's uh, pivot a little bit and talk about my favorite subject, which is soft skills. And you know, you've you've touched on several already. So those those may be, but you might. I don't know if you think about your career to date, and you were just talking before we started recording about the power of, of relationships, but how how soft skills have really at least as you were talking, you know, be, are, are, are super critical. So tell me what has served you well, what you see as the as the most important, uh, maybe in your own career, but you've had a chance to witness a lot of talent under your development. So what are you seeing? What do you, what do you, what's your perspective on soft skills or the one or two that are super important? Yeah, I, I really had to think about that when you put it in your email. Yeah. Um, and, and I've already gotten into it. So this may be redundant. No, that's okay. But communication skills are soft skills, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to be very thoughtful about the way you communicate with folks. You have to read other people. Maybe that's the soft skill, mm. being able to read the folks that you're working with and being able to communicate in a way that um, suits their style, you know? And again, I go back to humility, curiosity, and I keep coming back to that, and I apologize. No. As an effective leader, you need to be able to communicate in a way that individuals hear differently. And I think I've been pretty good at that. Yeah. I can always be better, but and then, and then clearly the soft skill of 
trying to understand the life experiences that people have that lead them to where they are and how they may be different than yours is really important. It's it's important. I I grew up in a suburban community, you know, that was different from what people who may have grown up on a farm in Indiana. Core values are the same, but experiences in dealing with those values are different. As we're looking for this new president at the University of Tampa, we have embarrassingly large number of people who would like the job. And I would say 50% of the people that have put their hands up are qualified to do the job. Yeah. But our job as a search committee is to find that one individual who brings the values, the soft skills to the table that will get us to the goals that we have as a community uh, going forward. And you know, you can say that about whether it's the president of a university, the president of a company, president of the United States, you know. Yeah. And I think the soft skills I don't know whether having a good feel on what is ethical behavior mm-hmm. is a soft belief, but I think yeah, <clears throat> right from wrong, mm-hmm. being able to communicate <clears throat> your vision of right and wrong yeah. is a soft skill that um, has been very helpful for Well, me. and you talked about yeah. earlier, which I think is so interesting, like here are the goals and the objectives and here are the rules in which we're going to achieve them. I've never heard it described necessarily in that way. And I, it really resonates with me. There's, you know, businesses have a code of conduct or you have your mission and you have your vision and you have your goals, (laughs) but the rules, that's an interesting and direct way of saying what is and what isn't. And it, the interesting thing that I have found as an HR person and as a mother and as a wife, you know, all these things, people actually respect and want boundaries. They need them. We all need them. And so leaders help to define them and clearly and repeatedly show them and demonstrate them. And every organization or society has their own set of rules. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the boundaries are drawn differently. Yep. And I don't want to miss the mark either, as you were talking about understanding the differences in, in people's background. And I, and I, even as someone who I think is people centric, I am, this is probably my biggest growth area, which is to really try to understand and take a moment to consider how other people are coming to a situation. And there's so many assumptions made on my end, you know, so this idea of impatience for people to catch up. And, you know, there's all the, there's some subtleties to that, but, you know, working in professional services where there's, there's such a pace and a expectation to perform and, an, an expectation to deliver and sort of at at the cost that nobody really wants to talk about. <laughs> and so you don't, at least in that environment, it's hard to give people that time. You know, you have to be really intentional about, I'm gonna let some people catch up. I'm gonna let this moment happen where I really understand more before we make a decision. And that's something I've been able to do more in my own business, which I really appreciate that I, I'm driving that timeline to be able to do that. But to your point, it's such an important aspect, especially when you are trying to drive change or you're trying to understand how to be more effective and, and successful. So I love that too. What about advice for uh, young Jim? You're gonna put your arm around young Jim, maybe 20 to 25 year old. And what do we tell him? Yeah, I thought about this one too. <laughs> I love this quote. I love it. It's one of my favorites. Number one, number one, take better care of yourself. Mm. Health. As we're young, we don't think we're ever going to be unhealthy. You know, even if we do unhealthy things. Yeah. A young body works better. 
take care, take better care of yourself. Longevity has its advantages. Yes. I, I love being old. It, it's really cool. I can do a lot of stuff that I couldn't do when I was young. Yeah. I can mentor. I can, you know, best professors in the world are the old ones. Yes. They're not the young ones. Yes. I can teach. Secondly, stop and pay more attention to your family and friends. They're both really important. They're really important. I've been dealing with this the last several years, this saying, you know, work-life balance. I got on a plane almost every week and went someplace and didn't spend that time with Kim and Leslie mm -hmm. as they were growing up. Um, I wish I could have done that differently. Having said that, you know, you got to pay attention to your career because there are things that you do there that also make a difference in the world. So try to figure out this work-life balance thing. And then finally, set goals. You know, if you don't have a goal, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. But if you have a goal, if, you know, I'm not saying everybody in the world needs to be a CEO. Yeah. I'm not saying everybody in the world needs to be a, a congressman or a president of the United States. I'm just saying, set a goal for yourself and work towards it. And, you know, my grandson Spencer is, he wants to be the greatest infantryman in the world. And I think he's, he may be, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So anyway, set goals. Set goals. Yes. You had a question you didn't ask me. Okay, please. Yes. Answer. Yes, please. And it is, what do you enjoy most? I didn't, through the first part of my career, I went to work. Enjoy was something that maybe happened on weekends. Now that I've moved on to the next phase of my life and coming out of my cardiac issues, uh, I really had the opportunity to think about what I enjoy most. Number one, I enjoy my wife. Hmm my spouse, my partner, ever since I was in the hospital, I can't get enough of her, hmm. even after 56 years. <laughs> Number two, my, my daughters and grandchildren are really special people. And, and what I can do as a dad, I'm now doing as a grandfather. And that's really cool. My coworkers, particularly my coworkers at the bank, we've been together, many of us for almost 20 years now wow. and they're like them yeah and I, and I really care about them whether it's the teller or the executive vice president yeah. don't matter what we're doing at the medical university of south carolina in taking health care to rural south carolina for me to be part of that at this point in my life is so important we do stroke intervention we do pediatric cardiology, we are, we are doing cancer research, we are doing some really important things. And I'll be spending the rest of this week in Charleston with the with Medical University of South Carolina, trying to figure out how we do it better. And then arts education. Mm. I mean, I got a D in art appreciation as a freshman at the University of, of Tampa. And um, my wife has turned me into somebody who really appreciates all the arts, whether it's performing arts, visual arts. Um, these are the things I enjoy, and I just wanted to get that on the record. I love it. For people that, I mean, your career is in mortgage banking. I mean, we could probably categorize that, at least in terms of your kind of what's led you to this point, which now you're more philanthropic, I think, and, and you know, working more as an advisor in a lot of different capacities. But for someone that is interested in the same kind of career path with respect to the financial acumen, economic interest, you know, mortgage and banking, what are the characteristics that you have seen that help people to succeed in terms of when you, because you're still seeing and have access to a lot of entry-level talent, right? You're still seeing people starting. So what are the, and maybe these things haven't changed over decades. Maybe they're still the same, but what what are the attributes that you see that really set people up for success? In banking, it's a, it's a unique combination of a qualitative approach 
to doing business and a quantitative approach to doing business. It's really unique, you know? I think, as you know, Liz, Liz's career was, she was an interior designer. Most of that is really qualitative, all right? There's not, there's not a lot of quantitative features to being in interior design. In being in finance, you need to be able to understand the quantitative side and really focus on the numbers and get into the number. But if you are only quantitative, you will fail <clears throat> because human behavior is qualitative. The results of that human behavior may be quantitative, but at the, at the foundation, it's qualitative. And I would say a lot of people going into the financial area today have spent a lot of time dealing with numbers and not enough time dealing with people. Yes, sir. Can I take that as a soundbite and play it everywhere? I agree. Anyway, you can use it any way you'd like. <laughs> awesome. Oh, thank you so much. This was wonderful. It's, it's great to see you. And um, when you're back in Hilton Head or you know, I try to stay away from your part of the world these days. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I get it. Thank you, Jim, for joining us on Relatable. I'm grateful for the time we had together. It's hard for me to pull out just a few things from our conversation. I love the key principles of humility, empathy, and curiosity, as well as these following Jimisms. <laughs> Not doing what I had to do, but doing what I want to do. Don't have to be sick to be better. Servant leadership, understanding the goals and objectives, as well as the rules to get there. Thank you to Missy for producing this episode and to Hannah for your support. A big thank you to our Relatable community. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment and subscribe and rate us on your favorite streaming platform. Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills, and you can find more information about Relatable and our sponsor by visiting tfasoftskills.com. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected.